Hi, everybody. Welcome to the October 25th, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get started with a quick take on President Trump's comment about building a wall in Colorado, a big, beautiful wall. He later tweeted that he was joking, but not soon enough to stop the issue from making national headlines. Patty Cahoon from Westward, you know, I've seen the, the effects of the great Chile war between Colorado and New Mexico. So a wall at the southern border of New Mexico is realistic, but you know, probably not very effective. Your thoughts when you heard this either kiddingly joke or uh, at least a, a fun faux pas? I thought, won't tomorrow be fun? When we, I heard that he made that he made the comment not originally in a tweet, but in a speech in Pittsburgh. And I know that we've got transplants coming here. I know they are coming. Meow wolf. No one stopped them from coming up from Santa Fe. So I guess Donald Trump has that on the brain. He wants to save our culture from the infiltration. You know, Donald Trump has spent some time here. He got in a big fight with his wife, Ivana, in Aspen decades ago that made headlines. He wanted to, at one point to redevelop Union Station. You would think he had never actually seen Colorado and realized that we are at least 500 miles from our southernmost point from Mexico. But this was great. And the added twist on this is a fellow who was just featured on your Sounds on 29th show, musician Will Hayden, had put up a GoFundMe campaign back in December as a joke to keep a, to build a wall between New Mexico and Colorado. So clearly, Donald Trump is paying attention to our media. <laughs> David Copel from the Independence Institute and Deal Law School. Perhaps this was uh, part of a PTSD reaction to him being stuck in an elevator in Colorado Springs. That was during the campaign. You never know what could have happened. Well, oh, perhaps he was thinking about the trauma of Colorado and the Civil War when the Texans attempted to invade Colorado via New Mexico, but fortunately uh, were turned back by the, uh, the first Colorado volunteers, which destroyed their baggage train. Undoubtedly a reference to that. Uh, Grown-ups, when they say something stupid, can just kind of let it go. So in the 2008 campaign, Obama referred to the 57 states. And, you know, some people mocked him for it. But at least he had the common sense not to put out a press release the next day explaining why he'd been right about that. <laughs> but not always a, a common trade. Eric Sonderman, political analyst and a new columnist with Colorado Politics. Great to have you back, Eric. Um, so I think about the various reactions here, and I get the whole idea of possibly being a joke, but putting that out there later. The part that wasn't a joke, seemingly, was the fact that the comment got a standing ovation. Uh, so I, I don't know what the reaction are from those folks that, that, that stood for that uh, out in Pennsylvania, but perhaps there's other stories and connections to this. Well, maybe geography should be part of the mandatory curriculum in Pennsylvania, we can, we can suggest here. I think we're all jumping to conclusions around this table that he meant the wall to go on our southern border. There was no indication in his comment that it was necessarily there. Perhaps it is to keep that influx from Wyoming out. I mean, you know, we all know Dan Haley, whatever. I mean, there are troublesome folks uh, who have immigrated to this state from Wyoming, and maybe uh, that was what was on the president's mind. We can save the stable piece for another day, but to deal with the genius piece today, uh, I'm not so, so sure that was a, a hallmark of it. Ed Seelever from the Denver Business Journal. Speaking of business, if that was promoted as a wall, maybe on the uh, the western border to stop California uh, from folks coming in, I got to believe that John Caldera would be putting down a few bricks. But we don't know where this wall was going to go. 
Well, we do know this, that we've talked a lot around this table in recent years about President Trump trying to undo President Obama's legacy by peeling back some of the things that were done during his administration. This is the first time I've ever seen him trying to undo President James K. Polk's legacy uh, (laughs) by going in and undoing the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo uh, that awarded New Mexico to the United States after the Mexican War. These executive orders have really got to stop. <laughs> Ed, we usually count on David for bringing something like that, but to reference the, 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 the administration of President Polk, well done. That was absolutely fantastic. The Colorado Attorney General released a report this week from an independent investigation into child sexual abuse committed by priests in Colorado's Catholic churches. The report detailed cases on 43 priests ranging over the last 70 years. The investigator said that no new cases of abuse were found after 1998, but also commented that records from the three dioceses in Colorado were flawed and incomplete. Uh, Patty, there, there is no time machine to go back the, the full 70 years to rectify or to figure out all the different details of these cases, but what it tells you about the current state of the diocese willing to cooperate and how the study was done did seem telling. Do you think there's going to be more to come as a reaction to this investigation? Well, there will certainly be more to come because people who have never stepped forward might now feel they should. I mean, you read some of these stories about people who were victimized 60 years ago. They were kids. They never are going to forget it. They're never going to get over it. It's appalling that it took this long for the Catholic Archdiocese across the country, around the world, to start really dealing with this. When you think about when Spotlight and the Boston Globe really broke that, the broke it open, that wasn't that long ago. And the fact that it took that long for it really to become public um, is appalling. That we now have a good report, good for Weiser, good for his predecessor, good for the people who are cooperating, bad that the archdiocese didn't feel like keeping um, records and instead would send bad priests all over. It's we're just going to hear more horrors coming, and unfortunately, it's not limited to the Catholic Archdiocese. Boy Scouts are in the middle of this. We're, we're hearing more and more. David, what are the legal ramifications here? It seems like it's, this investigation comes from the Attorney General's office, as Patty referenced, uh, Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman and Phil Weiser, part of that, and then a former <coughs> prosecutor was in charge of this. So this is a significant independent investigation. Do you think there's more shoes to drop here, I guess? Well, as, as Patty said, as, as more victims come forward, and the right, so the attorney, Colorado Attorney General's office basically raised some money, also got a substantial grant from the Catholic Archdiocese itself to hire an outside investigator, and that outside investigator was Bob Troyer, who was a longtime uh, attorney in the U.S. Attorney's Office and was the head of the U.S. Attorney's Office from 2016 to to 2018. Uh, one of the things that was that they found no evidence, doesn't mean it's not there, but they, they found no indication uh, of any abuse since 1998. And the, the peak period uh, was the 1960s and 1970s, and the most common type of victim uh, were, were males aged 10 to 14. And that's a, a pattern that's consistent with, with other places in the United States where uh, in the Vatican, post-Vatican II atmosphere, there were some people in the church who took that as some kind of license to, to run wild uh, sexually. The report has a number of inv- uh, recommendations uh, for the church to improve its, its record-keeping and other processes, uh, such as h- hiring a full-time victim 
uh, services coordinator, and Archbishop uh, Keela has said he's going to implement um, all of those recommendations. Eric, do you think, as as far as there's uh, countless issues when it comes to the Catholic Church, how it's been handled worldwide and even locally, but it seems to me that this, as Patty references, is not the only institution to have problems like this. It, it feels like a watershed moment for not only the Catholic Church in Colorado, but other organizations to, at the very least, do something about uh, getting their house in order and in implementing the systems that at least guarantee we move forward in a safer fashion. Do you see other organizations stepping up to that, seeing what's coming down from this investigation? One would hope so, and there's some indication of that uh, around the country. I mean, it was just such, when the story came out a few days ago, so stunning, sad, sordid. I mean, here's an institution where the whole mission of the institution ostensibly is a pastoral mission to care for people, to nurture people, and yet this has been going on. And, you know, we keep thinking it's isolated incidents, but it's one isolated incident on top of another on top of another, and, uh, you know, it is not uh, limited to one person. There were a few particularly bad actors, somebody named Harold White, who I think was responsible for 60 uh, out of the 160-some, uh, that were documented, uh, and he just kept getting farmed from one one parish to another parish to another when the heat got too hot. And that is, it's inexplicable to me how um, heads of the church, uh, heads of, of those dioceses could let that happen. But it was the pattern of the church. The story hit home a little bit for me. I mean, I think people like Patty and David might remember this individual. There was a state senator from Pueblo back in the late 1970s, early 1980s. He was a personal friend of mine. We spent time together, hung out when, uh, when I was working for Governor Lamb at that point in time. He was in the state senate. Interesting guy named John Bino, Catholic, uh, Catholic priest from Pueblo. His name is in this report with two credible charges, and it just goes to show you never know. You never know. Ed, what do you think about the response while I realize I've been a lifelong Catholic. It's going to be limited of what an archbishop can do as part of the, the system and dogma of the Catholic Church. But there's got to be a local response. What do, what do you expect here in Colorado? Well, I think we saw the local response. Archbishop Aquila came out and said, look, we are going to implement all of these recommendations you're putting forward. That's new record keeping, new processing, uh, ways to get people who are not priests and bishops involved in this process. Um, I think the response was a very open and very quick one as they realize just the decades of malignancy that have gone on here. But I think we need to keep this in perspective. We, we've put this, uh, two people have mentioned this, there is not a case that's come forward in 21 years now. Um, and let's remember, this has been an issue nationally for about 15 years now since the uh, allegations first came up in Boston. I don't think if there were a raft of cases, we wouldn't have heard about them. We are in a newly empowered culture where people are going to speak out a lot more against things that are wrong. Uh, so I don't, I don't anticipate a lot coming forward uh, from that time. Uh, to what Eric said, nearly two-thirds of the cases were the result of five pedophiles. Um, that's not to say this wasn't law-wide region. We have 40 priests implicated here. But the vast majority came from five sick individuals. And again, this was the 1960s and the 1970s when most of this happened. That is not to say we should not be giving absolute empathy and financial support 
to the victims who have gone through this. What they've gone through is terrible and is a result of an institution that couldn't police itself. And it's also not to say that the Catholic Church, they have to learn from this. They have to look at this and they have to see what went wrong and how it will never go on again. But let's put this in the political perspective, which is what we normally deal with here. If this were the Colorado state government accused of misdeeds, we would be talking about things that were done under Governors John Love and Dick Lamb and trying to tar Governor Polis with those deeds. I think we have to understand there were horrible things that were done, but this is a different place with different leaders in the Catholic Church today. It's an important perspective. Thanks, Ed. RTD may significantly cut routes to, to a shortage, due to a shortage of operators. Management blames a shortage on the low rate of unemployment, but the operators and drivers themselves say it is a retention problem. Many drivers say they are expected to work a 13-hour day and for six days a week. They also face blowback from management for taking bathroom breaks or family medical leave. Uh, David, RTD has not been uh, at a lack of problems. This one seems new and probably the one that's really going to have the greatest risk of reducing service. What's the right response? Well, obviously to, to raise salaries. They have too few employees who are having to work too many hours. And they say, and it's true, unemployment is low. And therefore, it's harder to attract people at the salary they currently pay. What a business that has an ability to survive over the long term does in that situation is we say we're going to raise salaries and then we'll get more employees in and then the current ones we have won't have to work so hard but they can't raise salaries and one of the key reasons is they're four million dollars in debt and the most important single reason they're four million dollars in debt is the amount of cost overruns they've had on their light rail fiasco so they're now in this death spiral. They're going to have to keep on raising fares, which don't even come close to covering their cost of operations, uh, and cut back service. So you, you pay more and you get less. Um, and that's going to be a vicious cycle that's going to get worse and worse. Ridership's going to continue to fall. And ultimately, RTD is going to become irrelevant. Uh, they essentially... Um, committed a, a long, they poisoned themselves in the long term for their, their sustainability uh, with the light rail boondoggle. Eric, uh, this seems fairly significant, and one of the, the loudest uh, voices we've heard from the drivers and operators themselves, and while I don't uh, use light rail buses that often, though I don't want to be on one where a driver is compromised by either not getting a bathroom break or being on a 13-hour day, so I can't imagine this is inspiring more folks to jump on the bus or light rail. What's, uh, where do we go from here with our RTD? I think David has the right diagnosis. I'm not sure he has the right prognosis. I'm not sure I'd call it a death spiral or at least go there yet. But RTD is facing multiple problems. They have decreasing ridership. They have, as a consequence of that, decreasing revenue. They have debt. They have, obviously, a human resources problem with how they're treating their staff. They may not have any way around that. They need more hours out of a shrinking number of people, and they don't have a pot of money, as David points out, with which to grant uh, higher salaries. I, I think it's probably inevitable at some point that uh, we see a tax increase proposal, whether the voters would buy into it or not, remains to be seen. And um, I'm not sure I want to be the one spinning that one on behalf of RTD. I think that's going to be a very tough sell, but that there will be people within RTD uh, that propose that as the out at some point. But uh, I don't know if it's a death spiral, but it is certainly a downward spiral here. 
And maybe what the RTD needs to do is what a private business would do in this situation, which is some degree of triage. Maybe not all routes are equal. Maybe you need to assess where you have the most ridership, the most demand, the most customer need, and prioritize those. Just a thought. And uh, I was able to travel a little bit the early part of this uh, month, and in two big cities, like everybody else, whether it's in Denver or another big city, just astonished at the ease of multiple modes of transportation, including things like Uber and Lyft. The Independence Institute has been talking about privatizing different parts of RTD for a long time, and RTD has put out contractors as part of their routes, but it feels like some of the solution might be from the private sector. Do you think that idea might grow? Well, to determine whether that's a solution, RTD has to make a hard choice between one of two routes that it wants to take now. One, if it wants to subsidize its service, it wants to pay for its service, and I don't think it'll ever get to 100%, um, but if it wants to largely pay for service from fare box receipts, it needs to look hard at it and say, we're going to have to get rid of some of the inner city routes where people can't afford to buy, ride the bus. We're going to have to concentrate on getting people from Douglas County or from Jefferson County into the city where people are willing to pay the costs of doing this. But I'm not sure that's what RTD's mission is. And if that's the case, it's got to think of a second alternative, which is do we forego those routes, the ones that maybe people have alternatives for traveling to, uh, and instead look for a, a different kind of subsidy? And, and I don't know the answer to what that is yet. I don't think a tax hike is going to pass for this. Um, but do we look to get rid of some of those routes where we can do other modes of transportation and focus solely on transporting the people who have no alternatives? Um, I don't have an answer there. I just want to throw that question out because I don't think RTD can have it both ways. Patty, what do you think? The Caldera Express to Boulder coming anytime soon? Well, I think maybe bungee jumping from Boulder for Caldera <laughs> will work. This is such a critical time for RTD, which was set up to really help people who didn't have transportation in the city four decades ago. And now you all of a sudden have this increased emphasis on not, especially in the inner city, on not, being, not driving, density, no parking. You're trying to get people to take alternative modes of transportation. And in the winter in Colorado, I don't think the alternative is scooters. We need, I mean, buses still make the most sense as alternative modes of transportation. So we need to have at the highest level in this state, really look at how RTD can be saved and should it be saved. Ridership, why not at this point just let people ride for free? Such a small percentage of their ridership money comes from fares. You might as well see if people would take RTD if it was free, because if no one will take it when it's free, then we really have a problem. Denver City Attorney is asking about a dozen of, mayor, of the mayor's appointees and confidants to turn over their phone records. She wants to find out who leaked information about the termination of the DIA renovation contracts. CBS4 was the recipient of the leaked information, but only reported on it after the administration's press conference. Uh, Eric, uh, how to make a, pro a bad problem worse. Um, 101, uh, brought to you by the mayor's office this week. Your reaction? I think you said it. I think you said it well, Dominic. I've been through DIA a few times recently. I suspect most of us have. The place is a whole right now. It's not functioning all that well, um, not to mention the construction zone, which is semi-inactive as we speak. Um, of all the problems facing DIA, I think ascertaining who leaked some emails or whatever might be a little bit lower on my list than actually dealing with uh, the core problem. Kristen Bronson, the city attorney, I don't know. I don't know her. She has a good reputation around town. People applauded the hire when Michael Hancock made it. 
but uh, you know this reeks of Nixon and plumbers and it just doesn't end up anywhere good uh, and even if you fess out you know the person who leaked this I believe to Brian Moss over at Channel 4 so what then deal with the core issue Ed, the the fact that this was was leaked right before the administration was going to be talking about it, it didn't seem like we, this wasn't deep throat in a parking lot talking to Brian Moss here. So, uh, what do you expect from the, the fallout from these headlines we saw this week? I mean, very, the fact is, very few things are not leaked before uh, a government is ready for, it, whether it be the state or the city or others. So we're in this profession. We're in this profession to find information, and so I mean, Brian Moss was just doing his job and apparently did it well. Um, I expect. Exactly Exactly what Eric said. I think people are going to look at this and say, seriously, this is what you're concentrating on? I think the city may have been a little misguided in the fact that it got a lot of applause because it investigated and stopped the um, uh, expansion of the convention center because of leaks from uh, somebody that that compromised the bidding process. This is not a compromise of a bidding process. This is public information getting out before the mayor wanted it to get out. I would advise they work in a different area right now. Patty, uh, you edit Westward. You're faced with this kind of uh, Freedom of Information Act kind of stuff all the time and connections and, and leakers maybe coming to the <coughs> press. Could, how should the mayor's office ha- handle this? They should have said we don't do this. We do not go after sources of information. It's not like this story jeopardized the mess that's already at the airport. <laughs> Jane Doe coming in from Des Moines could have called up Brian Moss and said, hey, there's something wrong at that airport. I mean, we've all been there all summer. It was a nightmare the whole way it came down. We also have our issues with even the design that was approved in the first place. So shame on the city for doing this. Shame on them for going after it. Love it that Brian Moss was also able to report the investigation first. So good for him on that. You don't go after the leakers in a case like this when they are putting out information that's going to come out later anyway. David, wrap it up for us. Uh, do you think the leaker investigation will go forward after the reaction we've seen? Yes, and let me be the of lone one, I guess, here to stand up for the mayor and the city attorney's office. They, <laughs> I hope they're sitting down. <laughs> <laughs> they have a legal obligation to the airport bondholders. If I were holding a bunch of airport bonds, I'd be a very nervous fellow these days anyway for all the reasons. It's a complete fiasco, disaster. Um, it's going to make the airport worse even when it's finished, if ever. But they have an obligation to the bondholders that the bondholders find out first or certainly not second. And so when they make a decision on one, one day and they're going to announce it on the next day, you don't, it's their legal obligation that the media or anybody else doesn't find out before the bondholders does. So they're, I think they're properly fulfilling uh, their legal obligations in this complete fiasco, but at least they're, they're doing right by the bondholders in, in that regard. There's a border wall in Colorado. Ed Sealiver quotes the Polk administration, and David <laughs> Cope will just defend the city of Denver. We are living in the upside down, people. I'm just saying. It is time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, first of all, all you leakers, don't listen to David. Feel free to call me at any time. Email, call. I will take all calls. Uh, Sequest. Littleton, if you happen to have gone there, what could go wrong with a little aquarium zoo in a shopping mall? We've had, uh, we've had a woman go on trial because a sloth got burned. We have a protest there tomorrow. It was really a bad idea, and maybe it might be time to close it up. There's a protest tomorrow. David. 
I suggest if you want to call Patty with a leak, don't use your government-issued cell phone to do it. <laughs> and if you meet with her at her office, why don't you just leave your cell phone there so they can't location track you. Uh, for resolving a long-term disgrace and making progress on it, our, the new acting head of the Bureau of Land Management, Will, Colorado's William Perry Penley, uh, has announced a huge increase in how many uh, wild horse adoptions they've had um, coming from Nevada and, and other states to deal with a very serious problem of excess uh, population there. Eric. Oh, so many possibilities this week, Dominic. Let me go with some shadowy group called Students Deserve Better, which is a front for the Denver Classroom Teachers Association, the Teachers Union, which has put out not one but two mailers attacking people who had deigned to have some slightly different notion. Two out of those three candidates happen to be Latina females, uh, Diana Romero Campbell, Alexis Menacal Harrigan. Not only were the mailers distortions of what they're advocating, they decided to de-Latina them by taking away their Latina name and whitewashing uh, their faces. This is our teachers union. Uh, they represent some of the finest among us, Denver teachers, but the union itself ought to be ashamed. Ed. I'm uh, about a week behind on this, but I'm still angry because as someone who has defended the First Amendment throughout my career, I'm disgusted by Beto O'Rourke's proposition to destroy the First Amendment. And you might say, oh, he's just saying, well, if you know, churches don't abide by what we believe is the right stance in gay and lesbian issues, we'll take away their tax status. Let's put this in another perspective. What if there's certain speech we don't like? Let's just go after a little speech, not all of it. What if there's certain assemblies we don't want to happen. Let's just go after the assemblies we don't like, not the ones we do. This is totalitarianism at its worst. Tennessee is something nice. Patty. Uh, two public servants we lost this week, Judge Richard Spriggs, who was really great on the court, and Dottie Wham. Dottie Wam, who was a leader, Republican leader in the legislature when it wasn't common for women there, always had a good sense of humor and good common sense. David. Uh, Justice, speaking of good public servants, Justice Elena Kagan spoke at the University of Colorado Law School this week, and as usual, she was incisive, wise, and funny. Eric. John Hickenlooper. Apparently, there was some candidate forum over on the Western Slope. There was a question asked among Democratic activists about who favors impeachment. Obviously, all the hands of all these Democratic candidates shot in the air. Hickenlooper was like a more reluctant hand in the air and then pulled it down. There's something to be said for a little bit of reticence here and a little bit of keeping your cards close to your chest. You might be a juror. If you're serious about being a U.S. senator, you might be a juror in an impeachment case. Good for Hickenlooper for trying to, throw, trying to maintain some impartiality. Ed. Uh, VF Corp announced that its move and hiring of 800 people to Denver is complete today, but it's not really complete because they're going to move a sixth of their company's headquarters here. This is Icebreaker, now based North Americanly up in Vancouver. It's great to see this company continues to add jobs to the local economy. I want to say something nice about a couple of my friends from high school joining me in the control room. David and Heather, good to have you here. And before we go tonight, I want to remind you that the semifinals of this season's Both Sides of the Story tournament starts next week. Up first, Rhea Scaria from Mountain Vista and Haley Stotts from Eagle Crest High School debate if Colorado's public schools should, be armed, should have armed guards present throughout the school day. It's going to be a great debate. That is all the time we have this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night. Thank you.